Welcome to Building the Future. I'm your host, Kevin Horick. You can check out the radio version of the show every Tuesdays and Thursdays at 2 p.m. Eastern on WDJY 99.1 in Atlanta. We also air on a podcasting network in Los Angeles called the 405 Media. There's a TV version of the show that airs on KMVT 15 in Silicon Valley at 8 p.m. Pacific on Tuesday nights. Both versions of the show air in other states. For these show times plus past episodes, please visit the show's website at buildingthefutureshow.com. The music for the show is done by Electric Mantra. You can check them out at electricmantra.com. Join me at the 10th Annual Media Excellence Awards on January 18th in Beverly Hills, California. The attendees and I will be celebrating innovation and leadership in technology and entertainment. There are 20 award categories with 1,000 nominees. These awards honor those who are creating groundbreaking technology to better our lives and celebrate the hard work, determination, and brilliance in the leadership within the companies which create the new world we live in today. I will be recording nominees and winners at the awards. For tickets and more information, go to MediaXAwards.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Louise Begelman. She's the co-founder and executive director at Story Shares. Louise, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to have you on the show. I, I think what you guys are doing at uh, Story Shares is actually really interesting and, and much needed. Um, but before we kind of get into that, let's get to know you a little bit better and kind of start off with where you grew up. Sure. Yeah. So I, um, I grew up in the Philadelphia area, right outside of Philadelphia. Okay. Um, and keep going. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. Um, I actually just moved back to the area. So I'm now where I, where I began. (laughs) Um, and then I went to college in upstate New York at Cornell. What did you take there? And then, um, I was a English and psychology major. Okay. And what got you, or what did you, why did you want to take English and kind of psychology? Was there like a defining moment in your kind of childhood or, or as you were growing up? Hmm, yeah, I, um, I was always really into English and reading, writing. Um, I always say, you know, my, my parents turned all the walls in, in our house into bookshelves uh, throughout my childhood. So it's so always kind of surrounded by books. Um, and that's what drew me to English. And then I'm also fascinated by people and what makes people work. And, um, you know, the funny thing about English and psychology is that they're obviously different fields, but there's a lot of overlap as far as analysis of, of characters. Um, so those were the, I also kind of had a sense that I wanted to go into education, but wasn't fully there yet. So those were the right kind of fields of study for me. Sure. And then you, you did get your master's of education, correct? I did. Yes. And, and, and so what, yeah. so obviously what made you kind of decide to go, okay, I, I want to go and actually take education. Yeah. So I, um, I've always been interested in education and particularly, um, low income populations. Uh, I actually went to a Quaker high school and one of the things that they have as part of the framework there is that you go and do service projects um, throughout middle school, high school, oh, built cool. into the school day. Um, yeah, and so that was kind of my first exposure. I worked at, um, I, w- I volunteered at a homeless shelter and, and tutored the kids there. 
Um, and at that point, I remember being struck by this kind of contrast of, you know, so close to where I lived and such a different um, reality for those living in poverty. And so at Cornell, I did most of my extracurriculars were also related to education and tutoring. Um, I had the chance to, you know, go into middle schools and work with students there. And so by kind of late college, I knew that that was what I'd want to pursue. Um, and I and I applied for Teach for America, which was a really perfect pathway into education, particularly with the low-income focus, um, and that definitely solidified it. No, that's that's awesome. So you, when you finished your your master's, you you kind of have, you've done a bunch of stuff in the teaching space. You said you worked at Teach for America, um, but walk me through kind of your career up until you decided to co-found Story Shares. Yeah. So I was a teacher. I was a middle school teacher um, in Lynn, Massachusetts, so just north of Boston. Okay. And I taught um, I taught English language learners and um, students who struggled in general and focused on reading and writing. Okay. Um, and actually, a lot of what drives the work I'm doing now with Story Shares came out of that experience um, because it was there that I had, you know, 12-year-olds reading at a first or second grade level, um, and I struggled to find the right books for them to actually engage them in reading. Um, and so I was there for two years and then kind of bounced around. I actually moved to California for a year. Um, I taught there as well and then moved to New York where I started working at a family foundation. Okay. Um, and I was there for three years. Um, and actually, Story Shares, we got to start as a project within that foundation. Um, oh, and that was how it ended up kind of being born. That's, that's great. So before we kind of get into Story Shares, you also do some writing for kind of understood.org. What types of stuff yes. do you guys, what just type, types of stuff do you write um, for them? And, and what is the site kind of geared towards? Because I think it's a really good resource. Yeah. Yeah. Understood is a great resource. It's actually really new, but they've been able to put together so much content in a short amount of time. Um, it's really focused on supporting parents of children with learning and attention issues um, and helping to equip the parents with the tools and, and resources and community and, and understanding to you know, better support their own children and the journey of, you know, struggling with learning. Um, and my, my role there is around reading and writing issues. So I write articles, um, you know, anything from how to, how to hook your teenager into reading if they don't like it or, you know, strategies for supporting students who struggle with writing. Um, so I tend to focus on the reading and writing you know, section of students with struggle with learning. Sure. No, that's great. And that's understood.org, just so people can kind of check that out and go go read your posts there. But um, I want to, yeah. you kind of mentioned it a few minutes ago that Story Shares came out of a foundation you were working at. But what exactly is it? And kind of walk us through kind of how it became kind of a real thing inside of an organization. Yeah, so it's a, it's an atypical path, and it's um, 
but it it was a a cool way for it to be born. So basically, um, what we did at the foundation was we started it as kind of an experimental project, um, okay. and we launched this initial writing contest. So the idea was, you know, we knew like the problem identification part um, was there. I had experienced the problem, as I mentioned, from you know my own experience as a teacher. The foundation itself was focused on education, but also learning disabilities, and they were interested in the same issue. If you're an older student, if you're 15, but you're reading at third grade level, never going to want to read books for third graders, um, but the books that are, you know, written for your age group are too hard for you to access. And so we were, um, we we came up with this framework for writing contests as sort of a test to see if we gave guidelines and incentives to writers, would we be able to get them to actually create a new category of books um, that would meet the needs of these older students who are reading at lower levels? And so we we planned and ran the contest within the foundation, um, and it was a huge success. We ended up with uh, almost 600 story submissions in just four months. Wow. Um, and so that was like a real – it kind of exceeded everyone's expectations and felt like a real proof point. Um, and so at that point, we did a lot of – follow-up research around the stories to make sure we knew, like, are these really what we're going for? Are they high quality? Will they help the students? Um, And that was also, um, you know, resoundingly positive. And so at that point, the foundation gave us a grant to, or seed funding to spin this out and turn it from this internal project into, um, you know, an independent nonprofit organization to continue generating and then distributing these kinds of books. That's great. I I, I love that. And I I think one of the reasons I wanted to kind of have you on the show outside of kind of promoting what what you're doing kind of as a a resource is I I think when you, when we talked months ago, when you told me kind of you basically, you're working in a career and you know you're working at this foundation and you basically tried this project out and then kind of spun it into in your in your case like a not-for-profit but I, I think mm-hmm. like a lot of people that are kind of looking at being an entrepreneur or doing something they don't they're almost like scared to take something that's working inside of maybe their day job or foundation mm-hmm. or something and actually make it into kind of its own entity whether it's for profit or not for profit and i think just your journey just going through that i think is you know inspiring to other people to actually do this stuff inside of whatever industry that they're in yeah thank you yeah definitely a leap <laughs> sure but I, but i <laughs> to think to go that's from good, kind of yeah so, absolutely absolutely so you, you kind of gave a, a pretty good quick overview of story shares, but walk us through exactly kind of what you do. You mentioned, obviously, like you curate books for, for different age groups and, and stuff like that, but it, it's kind of more than that, correct? Yes. Yeah, so, yes, it is. Um, it's a digital literacy hub um, is one of the ways we kind of talk about it. Sure. Um, and the the hub has kind of these two 
key components. The one is the writer side and the other is the reader side. And so um, the writer side, we actually, it's a digital writing platform that guides writers to create books that are lower levels, but that are, you know, compelling to teenagers that are culturally relevant for, you know, a diverse group of readers. Um, so they use our book publishing tool to create these books and then submit them um, to our library. And then we, you know, we curate that content, we edit it. Um, the the stuff that's high enough quality, we then include into our library. Um, and so that's the reader side, which is, you know, this library is sorted by genre, but you can also hone in based on age and reading level, the right books at the right levels. Um, and then the books are enhanced with various features to make them more accessible. So like a visual glossary and, uh, you know, text-to-speech so you can listen to stories um, so it's kind of this, we think of it as like a literacy ecosystem almost. It's bringing together the two sides of the equation, the writers and the readers, and creating this community for the ongoing generation of this new category of books. Sure. No, I, I think that's that's great. But, and this might be kind of a stupid question, but how does a writer write for kind of certain age or kind of grade levels Mm -hmm. yeah you mean like the reading level part or the actual interest level part like if i'm i guess both well kind of both i i guess like they're probably not one in the same but how like if i'm a writer and i'm writing a story and i say you know what i want to write something that's interesting for you know teens that are reading at say like at some sort of elementary school level it like Mm -hmm. how do i like, is there kind of like guidelines or standards? Because what I'm trying to get at is if there's yeah. any kind of writers out there listening, like how do they even kind of get into this space? Yeah, so it's a great question. Um, it is, I the approach that I've taken in kind of crafting the guidelines is to try and keep it as simple as possible because I think a lot of the stuff you think about reading level and interest level and it can start to get kind of, confusing and daunting but at its very core um the way i frame it is first interest level is how old is the intended audience so am i writing for middle school students am i writing for high school students author you know we want all of the above so the author themselves has to decide who am i writing for okay and then based on that um one of the very key and simple components is the characters in your book and the things that they deal with and you know the drama of their everyday life has to be high school you know sure has to be high school based if they're high school students and the real problem that we're addressing is that right now those high school students have to read about second graders dealing with what they brought to, you know, for lunch. Um, So we give guidance around like topics that are relevant to high school students, um, all of that. You know, we're really interested in developing a diverse body of literature. So trying to have, you know, minority characters in non-stereotypical ways, et cetera. So that's the interest level piece. Um, Relevance is kind of my key key you know word for it on the reading level side um that's where people can feel even more overwhelmed or writers are not typically thinking about reading level when they're writing a regular book um but it's actually about keeping language simple and concise and straight to the point um so little things like 
don't, you know, make really long sentences with multiple clauses. Okay. You know, divide them with periods instead. Um, shorter chapters, uh, shorter overall book. Um, the vocabulary is really key. So kind of more accessible words and c- combining all of those key principles, which on some levels are good writing, right? Clarity <laughs> sure. um, results in the books being significantly lower reading levels. Avoiding idioms is another example. Um, things that can kind of trip you up when you're reading. <laughs> sure. No, I, that makes sense. And I, I guess the thing that's interesting to me about kind of what you're doing and, and I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, whether you're, if you're even like a, a really good reader, I think sometimes you want to read something that maybe isn't really technically challenging from a, a written perspective just because, I don't know, like, I, I think, and yeah, tell, tell yeah. me if I'm wrong, is like, I like watching sometimes like mindless TV shows that are just like mindless comedies mm-hmm. because I don't want to, something as complicated as say like Game of Thrones where I need to really pay attention yeah. so I understand what's happening where if you have something that's kind of a bit like mindless comedy you could be on your phone or the computer and kind of it's in the background and I, I don't mean that when I like like I'm not trying to make it sound like oh like you're not paying attention when you're reading but sometimes you, you just want something yeah. that you're not like constantly having to think through like almost every sentence, like totally. some of the more complicated books, right? Yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, it's, it's even like the example you gave with TV shows. It's like there are different purposes for TV shows. Sure. Um, sometimes you're in the mood for light and, and mindless, and sometimes you want something kind of heavier and more of a thought provoking. And same with language. You know, there one of the purposes of language is to be beautiful and use you know metaphor and and all that. But for the students we're serving, that's not the right purpose. It it has to be more kind of easier to grasp. So um, to what you're saying, I absolutely agree. I think, you know, in this case, it's like, yes, you have to let go some of the flowery language or the kind of beauty of language for language sake for these books and focus more on easy to comprehend, um, kind of more graspable. <laughs> sure. No, I, I think that's... Yeah. Okay. No, that that makes sense. So, because, no, yeah, go I'm, ahead. Sorry. Sorry. One more thought to add about that is I think the readers that we're serving um, a lot of times, especially like take a high school student, for example, if you're really reading far below grade level as a high schooler, you probably have also developed a kind of um, bizarre relationship with reading in general. You probably do not love it, right? You haven't read a book that really got, you know, hooked you in a while. Um, You probably are somewhat embarrassed by, you know, maybe your skills being behind. And so a big part of our approach um, has to do with trying to sort of start to strip away the negative associations with reading um, and, and really engage the students so that they can start, you know, feeling like, oh, actually reading is something I can do that's enjoyable and that that ultimately results in more reading, which then improves your reading skills. Um, so the kind of engagement piece is, is a key component of our approach, is kind of giving them a positive, happy reading experience. <laughs> no, I, I think that's, that's really important. And I remember even just being in kind of, you know, elementary school and like when, and I don't know if they still do this and you can maybe tell me if they do or not, but 
<laughs> people had to read out loud maybe like a couple pages or something to the whole class. And yeah. I can imagine if you're not a strong reader or even if you are a strong reader, just being like, because it's basically your first introduction to public speaking. I get your reading, but it, like, yeah. right? Like just reading out loud yeah. can be kind of daunting in itself. And then if you're kind of totally. a, not a strong reader, you know, it's got to be kind of not the greatest experience, right? Do, do they even right. still do yeah. that in classrooms these days? Um, they do still know? do in some okay. classrooms. Yeah, okay. yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, it's the kind of thing that as a teacher, if you're sort of in tune to your students' psychological needs also, then ideally you don't. But I, like I know sure. it's like so many students have been traumatized by that kind of experience, right? You have to get up there and show everyone that you're struggling. Sure. Yeah. And that can be kind yeah. of terrifying. The, the other thing. Yeah. And on the same embarrassment. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. The, the same embarrassment framework actually applies to the, the kind of book. So, you know, back to my 12 year old who's reading at a first grade level, the books written for first graders, they look like baby books. Right. And so she didn't want to be caught practicing reading on one of those books that was embarrassing to her and I felt I totally got that and so one of the things we do with three shares is we you know these are shorter books they do use um, language that's more simple but they look like teen books they look kind of cool and catchy and so that takes away some of the stigma that students feel if they have to read kind of lower level books sure well and you guys also do adaptations of kind of uh, like books like I think the best example just even looking at your homepage is kind of 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 mice and men so walk me through kind of that is it is it basically some some other author takes that book rewrites it the same kind of story simple like simpler for a certain grade level is is that a good way of describing that yeah. Yeah, pretty much. And that's really, it's interesting you bring that up because those those adaptations we have are actually created by teachers who, um, like of Mice and Men, for example, had to, you know, teach of Mice and Men as part of the standards to high school students. Um, but they, it was too hard for them um, or for some of them. And so she, and apparently this is actually really common, she rewrote her own version to capture kind of the essence and themes and all of that, but at a simpler level. Um, so, she, so teachers turns out level books themselves to enable their students to access them better. And um, a lot of teachers um, enter our contests too. So sure. yeah, we haven't really emphasized that element because there's still some nuance to adaptations and previous previously existing content that we have to wrap our minds around but the idea of having one book at many different levels um, is really appealing more broadly because we have lots of different students in our classes sure and, and especially uh, well I, and I'm, I'm assuming so again kind of tech tell me if I'm wrong but if you come you know to kind of you know, America or North America or wherever, and English isn't necessarily mm -hmm. your first language and you're, and you're learning the language, plus you're in kind of, say, high school, you might want mm -hmm. something that's a little bit less daunting because, to read because you need to do a book report on, you know, or something, right? And just having, yeah. you know, a, a simpler version 
even if like English isn't your first language, if they don't make a version in your kind of first language, is that fair yeah. to say? Absolutely. English language learners and, you know, new new immigrants to the country are a huge part of the reader base that we serve because because of that exactly. You want you are able to totally grasp high level concepts, but your language abilities are further behind. So having, you know, having versions of mature content that's written at more accessible, graspable levels is, is really important for English language learners. So I, I think you kind of mentioned it throughout the show so far with kind of the contest, but I really want to kind of give that a little bit more time. And, and so what exactly is it and kind of what can people kind of submit for? Yeah, so the contest is a fun part of our model because it brings together, you know, this community of whether it's writers or teachers who um, who can create a new kind of book. So um, we actually are post have postponed this current one for various reasons, but we're having it as an annual contest. So once a year, um, we give these same guidelines, and then the writers. Um, and then we give prizes, cash okay. prizes, um, to, you know, I think right now our standard is doing five categories. Um, our grand prize is always diverse, um, diverse literature, because that's one of the big pushes. And then we have four other ones that we create as categories based on what we identify to be gaps in our library. So, oh, we don't have enough, you know, um, horror stories or related stories and so then we might make that a contest category to try and generate more of those um, so we offer prizes to all of those categories and then we do a big awareness campaign about it around it we reach out to writers in all the different ways we can think of and writers have you know a finite amount of time to create and then um, you know they can actually kind of design their books and then submit them to the contest um, and that's when we then start honing in on which ones really meet the needs of our library. Uh, when the writers submit their stories, they agree to share their stories with us from then on for our library, um, even if they don't win. Okay. So that's how, that's kind of our best way to build the collection. People can actually submit stories all year round, even when there's no contest, but there's just not the same incentives. Sure. There. So do you guys pay for the content or is it donation donated or how does that kind of work? Yeah, so we pay just the winners, and the rest is is kind of donated with the with the framework of there's an there's a potential to win, right? So right. then, then that would be your compensation. But otherwise, they just they just provide it. And what's really cool about this um, that we've learned along the way is writers are inherently interested in literacy. Um, you know, they love writing and reading, and and they're bought into the importance of literacy. Um, most a lot of people have really just have no idea about this problem and the huge number of um, teens and adults in our country who read below grade level. So when we just kind of frame it up for the writers, like, hey, there's this huge audience of readers. They need a new kind of book. If you follow some relatively simple guidelines, you can create this book for them um, and contribute it to this growing collection. The writers are really actually a lot of them are just inherently motivated to do so. So. We've been really, you know, pleased by the 
the giving spirit of the writers as we've built this collection. No, I, I think that's awesome. And, and you touched on something that I actually was going to ask you kind of coming up, but how you mentioned obviously that there's a huge number of, of people. Do you kind of have some, some stats on that? Like how big of a problem is it really? And you, I don't really care about the political kind of views of it, but like just kind of based on what you've seen, um, how big of a problem is it kind of really? Yeah, so the numbers are startling as far as I'm concerned. They say, um, you know, there's different estimates, but they say it's like 90 million teens and adults wow. in the U.S. Wow. That, read, that lack some basic literacy skills, so that's a huge number. Um, it's, I think, 70% of high school students in this country need some form of reading remediation, um, and... I think it's, uh, I can have to look at my numbers, but I think it's like 16% of African-American students are proficient readers at the end of fourth grade. So that means that the rest of them are not proficient yet. And the problem with that is that after fourth grade, we're not, you know, our education system is not focused on teaching reading anymore. We assume that you learn reading, you know, okay. kind of in early elementary school. And then we, we, we believe that you know how to read and then you use reading to learn going forward. So in science and social studies in high school, you have to read in order to answer the questions. And so that's why we're focused on kind of the fourth grade plus category because those students have fewer opportunities to then catch up. Um, So yeah, it's a, it's a really, it's a, wide-scale problem. And part of that is because the reason why someone might struggle with reading is varied. So it might be English language learners, it might be students who have reading disabilities like dyslexia, and then also just a huge percentage of students who are living in low-income communities who maybe weren't exposed to reading early on, who maybe didn't have the best early reading instruction at school, are also reading far below grade level. I see. Yeah, no, that that's interesting. So... I don't know kind of how this ties in necessarily, but I'm, I'm curious about what about audio books that where they kind of get read to you? Like, is does mm-hmm. that help you in kind of actually reading or are they totally unrelated from each other? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, the short answer is it does help actually okay. with reading and um you know there's i'd say there's some controversy around it maybe some people would not or certain parents would say like no i don't want my kid to you know listen to the book instead of read it um it can't be a complete replacement because obviously the skills are different but it's an important tool because um reading is making meaning from text right and so if you're reading something, you are comprehending it um, using all sorts of kind of implicit skills and strategies. If you listen to the text, you're doing that also. You're just taking away the decoding part, the actual blending together of letters and words. Um, So giving students the opportunity to listen to text and really make meaning through listening is a way to then kind of bridge towards merging that skill with the decoding skill and have them become better at reading. Gotcha. Um, especially if they can listen while they're reading. So on our website, you can 
use text-to-speech, which is basically like a, a way to make it into an audiobook, and it'll highlight the words as it reads them to you. So that way you can kind of make the connection in real time also. Got you. Yeah, and then I guess, too, it also helps just with being able to use certain words in, in kind of sentences and context when you're kind of talking to people, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. So, I, yeah, I, it's like listening comprehension and reading comprehension are so closely linked. Sure. No, that that makes a lot of sense. So I, I'm a little bit curious, though. Um, we're we're kind of coming to the end of the show, and I really want to make sure that we cover all the kind of features that, you know, you guys kind of provide to people. Obviously, people can go to the website and kind of read the book. You have a link to kind of, you know, buy the actual book. You can have it listen or people can listen to the book but like is there any mm-hmm. other features that i kind of forgot to or we've kind of forgot to cover in this that you you'd like to kind of mention um yeah i would say um from the kind of teacher angle we have one of our um frameworks for how we get this out there is that a lot of times these students aren't necessarily looking for books themselves. So the teachers are a good channel for really getting books to students. And so we have things like a teacher dashboard where teachers can build a class and they can um, recommend books to different students within that dashboard and see how they're progressing. Um, We have, we're actually building out some kind of supplemental teacher plans, uh, lesson plans and assessments to go with some of the books so that teachers can kind of use them without having to do a lot of work themselves. Um, and then one of my favorite things, which I have not mentioned yet, is you know this writing tool, this book publishing tool that we created for the contest and for authors to create their books. Um, we learned through some of our early pilot studies that that was actually a really compelling feature for the students because they could create their own books and design them and then actually like publish them to our student writing section, which we call for teens by teens, um, and become, you know, published authors themselves. And so it's a way to really deepen. Yeah. It really hooks them in. (laughs) Even like a confidence thing, right? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So we have a lot, we encourage it, you know, with the schools where we're working, students can read a book and then they could write their own prequel or their own sequel, or they could write an adaptation that takes place in a different country or whatever it is. And that's, um, it's also a way for teachers to get a sense of how well they comprehended the story. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, is there anything else? Cause we're, we're getting kind of close to the end that you kind of want to mention. Um, I think those are really the main pieces. I think like the core of what we're providing is this library with, with the ability to filter books so that you can really specifically hone in on the ones that are right for you, both age and interest wise. Um, we are still young and evolving. So soon I imagine there will be many other elements, but um, those are the key ones for now. <laughs> Perfect. So I, I think one last thing is you guys have won a bunch of awards. Do you kind of want to maybe give us a quick overview of the awards that you guys have won? Yeah, we've been really excited and honored um, to have been recognized in the field so far. So we uh, we won Teach for America's Social Innovation Award uh, recently. Wow, and we were awesome. also recognized. 
Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um, we were recognized by Forbes and also um, the International Literacy Association. And then most recently, we just were selected as an honoree in literacy um, by the Library of Congress. Wow, those are huge, actually. That That's really great for you guys. Yeah, thank you. It's a good way to really kind of get it out there more broadly as well. Sure. Um, well, let's close the show then with mentioning again where people can find you guys online and any other kind of social media links you want to mention. Yes. So it's storyshares.org. There's an S at the end. Um, and then on, you know, that's our handle on Instagram and Twitter. It's just at StoryShares, um, Facebook as well. And those are kind of the key key places you can find us. <laughs> Perfect. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time of your day to be on the show, and I look forward to keeping in touch with you, and have a good rest of your day. Great. Thank you so much. Perfect. Nice Thanks. Talk to you. Okay. Bye. Okay. Bye. Thanks for listening. Please visit the show's website at buildingthefutureshow.com. Also check us out on Facebook at Building the Future Show and follow us on Twitter at Building Show. The music for the show is done by Electric Mantra. You can check him out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future. <laughs>